Hey everybody, welcome to the ProGov podcast, a monthly podcast exploring policies and tools for progressive local governance with leaders from policy research institutes around the U.S. The ProGov podcast is brought to you by ProGov21.org, a free resource and public good for local legislators, policymakers, and advocates. ProGov21 is a fully searchable digital archive of thousands of progressive local and state policies and tools for their effective use. ProGov21 is a project of COWS, a think-and-do tank housed at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. I'm your host, Ada Inman, and today we are joined by David Cooper of the Economic and Research Analysis Network for an exciting discussion around job quality and preemption. And co-hosting today's episode with me is ProGov21's Alexis Iconi. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. So Dave, as the director of EARN, you're a leader in policy analysis and economics, specifically addressing minimum wage, wage theft, social insurance, and state labor markets. Can you please tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a a working class family in in New Hampshire. I was very fortunate to have a great public education. After that, I went on to college, got a degree in uh, government and English, had no idea what to do with it. Ended up working a bunch of odd jobs, everything from retail to waiting tables, bartending, wedding photographer, you name it. I ultimately got into doing some campaign work, some political campaign work. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, working on something that felt like it could change people's uh, living conditions, but I didn't understand what I was talking about in terms of the policies the candidates were advocating for. So I decided to go back to graduate school. I, I got a degree in public policy. And in that education space, I wanted to look at what was it that allowed some people to do better than their parents versus other folks, a concept that economists call intergenerational social mobility. And in doing that work, I got exposed to other aspects of economics, such as labor economics and the policies that governments set to to regulate people's experience on the job. Got really interested in that, ended up getting a job here where I am now at the Economic Policy Institute an organization whose mission is to uh, look at the economy through the lens of how it's performing for ordinary working people. And it's been great. Uh, it's a fantastic organization. I've worked on the uh, the EARN team within EPI for my entire tenure at EPI. I've been here for just over 10 years now doing work on all of the issues that you mentioned, trying to understand uh, what is it that will help folks get ahead and, and how can government uh, help to accomplish that. Great. So drawing from your area of expertise, what are some of the most pressing issues affecting low and middle income workers? Wow. Well, there's so many. Uh, I think fundamentally, the biggest issue is that over the last 40-ish years, pay compensation for typical workers just hasn't gone up as much as it could have, as much as it should have. Um, We've had enormous growth in productivity. In other words, the economy's ability to generate income, but very little of that income has gone to ordinary working folks, particularly low and middle income workers. And at the same time, we also haven't been making investments, public investments in the kinds of supports that would help ordinary folks, low and middle income workers get ahead, even if their pay isn't rising. I'm thinking of things like, you know, all the challenges around health insurance and, and paying for health expenses, adequate supports for Childcare and and family care and unemployment insurance to make sure that folks have a have a safety net if they have to change jobs things like that 
all of these, we've, we've both not rewarded people enough for the work that they're doing. And we've made their lives and their jobs more precarious by not setting up the sorts of structures that would allow them to get ahead. And a lot of that, I think, has you know, that that precarity has been really come has really come into focus in the pandemic. You know, we know so it's shined a bright light on all of these issues, the challenges that low wage workers have and the and the lack of supports, the lack of infrastructure that we've built to to support them. So in your experience, Dave, what are the most important things you want all local and state level policymakers to understand about local work centered policy? I think the two biggest things I would want state uh, excuse me, local local and state level policymakers to understand is that there is tremendous possibility for you to do things that that dramatically and meaningfully improve people's living conditions, particularly in their work life. The second thing is that passing or enacting what might be called pro-worker policy is not necessarily anti-business. In fact, in most cases, it's pro-business because there's oftentimes you know, there, it's oftentimes presented that policies that uh, will make a difference for working people, things like higher minimum wages, uh, requirements for paid leave or paid sick days, that this places a, a burden on businesses, that somehow this will make localities less business friendly, businesses won't want to locate there, or it'll be harder for that for small businesses to get started. Lots of arguments sort of in a similar vein. And, and people forget that uh, the workers in a community are the consumers in a community. They're the people that are going to be going out and uh, and buying goods and services. And so if you're passing policies that strengthen the economic conditions of the people working in a community, you're also strengthening the consumer base for the business community there too. And I think, you know, again, the pandemic has, uh, has really shined a light on uh, the way in which Underinvesting in these policies and underinvesting in local workforces can actually cause significant challenges for businesses. Right now, we're hearing a lot of stories about, you know, so-called labor shortages, and there's, you know, there's some debate as to how widespread those labor shortages are. But there are certainly some places and some sectors where businesses are genuinely struggling to to find people who want to take jobs, in large part because many of those jobs are really low paying or uh, they don't allow the sort of flexibility and schedules that it would allow people to accommodate, you know, care responsibilities, or they're just not safe because of the, the, the nature of the job and the fact that we're still in a pandemic. And I think that if we had some of these structures that I'm talking about, like paid sick day, you know, universal paid sick days, strong, high living, living wages as minimum wages, then businesses would probably have an easier time filling some of these vacancies and they would be all be kept on a, an even playing field. No one be, would be at a competitive disadvantage. And you'd have communities that would have, you know, strong consumer bases, people with money to go out and spend. And, and, and again, the, these are all policies that can be passed at the state and local level, not, not in every jurisdiction, but a lot of them. And there are a lot of models too. That's the other thing that state and local lawmakers are always looking for. There's, there's oftentimes a, a thinking that, you know, we don't want to be the first one to go ahead and try out this new policy. And, and in most cases, a lot of these policies that we're talking about have been tried and tested for a long time in other jurisdictions. And, and folks just need to find the political will to test them out in their own, in their own areas. Great. Thank you. So I want to transfer over to more earn specific questions. In general, can you just tell us a little bit about the economic analysis and research network, otherwise known as earns work? 
Sure. So uh, the Economic Analysis and Research Network, or EARN, is a network of um, just under 60 state and local economic policy and research and advocacy organizations. So these are groups like the Economic Policy Institute that try to examine how state and local economies are performing for typical working folks that live there and to advocate for policies that will improve outcomes for working people explicitly with a focus on trying to lift up communities of color and workers of color, um, recognizing that that uh, we need to do that in order to achieve uh, real equity. And so these are, these are organizations that are uh, doing analysis of the state and local level policies. They are talking to lawmakers, giving guidance on, uh, on new policy ideas, and trying to elevate issues of concern that they're observing uh, in the economy, things that that need to be addressed in order to make sure that people can le- live decent li- lives based on the jobs that they have. Earn emphasizes the importance of state and local policies that produce inclusive work-centered economies. So what resources does Earn offer to help advance these goals, specifically at the local level? Earn prides itself on producing really rigorous, top-notch research in support of support and analysis of various economic policies. And so we have people at, at our organizations throughout the country who are expert researchers who know how to use data correctly to analyze and, and estimate the impact of different policy proposals, whether that's, as I mentioned earlier, things like minimum wage proposals to budgetary changes and, and whatever the, the issue may be. Earn has great toolkits and sort of policy explainers on a lot of these policies that that we're talking about. And probably the, well, two other things. The second to last one is EARN is is a really strong network in the sense that there may be an organization in your state or your city that is an EARN group that lawmakers or local policymakers might want to go to if they have questions about a particular policy. And if that group doesn't have the answer, they can reach out to the rest of the network because more often than not, someone else in the network does have the answer. Or we at, at EARN HQ, as we call it at the Economic Policy Institute, we might know the answer. So um, there's a huge depth of expertise, depth and breadth of expertise uh, among the people in this network. And that means that, you know, there, there's there's plenty of uh, resources out there, plenty of knowledge out there to sort of crowdsource problems, or crowdsource ideas. The last related thing that EARN offers is connections to grassroots advocates too. A lot of our uh, organizations have strong partnerships with community-based groups, with organized labor, with, you know, other, other community representatives uh, who can help to provide insight into the real, you know, the human experience of a lot of these policies and the impacts that they have. Thank you. So how does EARN work to uplift these under-resourced communities through your policy research and recommendations? Well, we we make a conscious choice to um, to examine how these policies are going to affect those communities, those communities first, you know, and we we try to always think about the diff- the intersectionality between you know class and race and gender and all of these different dimensions upon which people experience their lives um, and the ways that policy can impact them. We also, as I said, have tight connections with uh, a lot of community representatives and community organizing groups, and we we try to work with them as much as we can to understand what their what the challenges are that their communities are facing and the impacts that policies have on them directly by listening to them, by talking to them, by by making sure that our research and policy advocacy is informed first and foremost by the folks who are going to be affected by the policies. So we, we make 
every effort to not just produce research and then say reach out to a, a community group to get comment, but to really talk to them in advance and, and make sure that this is the kind of research that's going to best understand their problems and best serve their communities. And, and we just make that a, a big priority of everything that we do. Great. Well, thank you for answering those questions. I'm going to turn it over to Alexis, who will do some more policy specific questions. So Alexis, take it away. Great. Thanks, Ada. And thanks very much, Dave. To get it started off on a really basic level, what makes a job a low quality job? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways that you could attack that question. At its most basic, I mean, a question it's a question of how much does a does a job pay? I mean, what what are what is someone getting in return for their labor? And so uh, looking at wage levels is sort of the simplest way that we assess job quality. But there are lots of other dimensions with which you can you can assess job quality, things like does is this a job that offers consistent work hours? Is this a job that allows flexibility if someone's schedule has to change? Is this a job that provides other work-related benefits like health insurance or retirement? Is this a job that allows someone to take time off when they get sick or if they have to care for a family member? Really, it's a, it's a question of whether a job allows someone to live a secure and fulfilling life. And there's so many demands that people have to, to do that. And so, you know, you, you may have, there may be some jobs that satisfy some of these criteria, but lack others and, and trying to enact policies that get more jobs to, to check all of the boxes, so to speak, is what we try to do. Does America have a job quality problem? Yes. Yes, America <laughs> does have a job quality problem. First, let me give some evidence to, to back up that assertion. You know, we've done a lot of work analyzing the impact of minimum wage changes. And a few years ago, we looked at, you know, what would happen if the federal minimum wage were raised to $15 an hour? We've done it, several analyses uh, like this as different bills have been proposed. And I think the first one we did a few years ago showed that about 41 million American workers, about one fifth of all U.S. workers would get a raise from a $15 minimum wage. I mean, that's pretty remarkable that one fifth of the workforce makes so little money that just raising the minimum wage to this level that I think most people would say now is is probably not going to be adequate in most of the country. You know, that just shows how significant a problem we have. The other evidence I would point to is, again, what we're seeing now in the pandemic. We're, We're seeing a lot of employers that are finding that that workers don't want to return to jobs that are low paying and that are precarious and that put them at risk for for incredibly low wages. Why has this happened? You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors we could point to, but I think the thing that ties them all together is that there is always a fundamental imbalance in power between workers and their employers. And over the last 40-ish years, 40-50 years, a lot of the mechanisms and structures that have existed to give workers some bargaining power with their employer have either eroded, have been allowed to erode intentionally, or they've been intentionally undermined. I'm thinking of things like uh, the failure to update labor standards, like the federal minimum wage, like overtime standards, the concerted campaign to undermine mutant, uh, mutant sorry, excuse me, unions, uh, not the same thing. You know, passage of right to work laws that that are designed to financially hamstring unions, uh, and we've seen lo- the rate of unionization in the country decline significantly over the last thirty five plus years. These are all things that basically just give employers greater bargaining power with their employees, so that employees just have less ability to to negotiate for higher wages. Other things like 
I mentioned the weakening of the safety net. We saw, again, with the pandemic, that state unemployment insurance systems were woefully unprepared for a situation when a huge portion of the workforce was suddenly unemployed. Well, if your unemployment system is not strong enough, it really takes away workers' ability to go out and potentially lose their job and look for a new one because, you know, if they don't have any cushion losing, you know, when, when they lose their first job, or if they lose their job, you know, and then they have to go and search for another one and they're making nothing from unemployment insurance, they're probably going to take the first job that that's becomes available to them, whether it pays well or not, whether it pays as much as their previous job or not. All of these things, and there's lots of examples I could give. All, there are all of these ways in which workers' bargaining power has been undermined over the last four decades. And we're only now starting to do a little bit more to try and address some of that. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the, the highlight of how relational this power really is. And so the next question I want to ask is, what are some of the critical interventions that are needed to improve job quality, whether at the state or local level? I think, you know, policymakers should be thinking about this imbalance in power. And all of the policies or the things, the interventions that they might make are, should, be, should always be things that work towards bolstering workers' bargaining power with their employers. So, you know, I mentioned unionization, anything that could be passed to sort of expand or bolster workers' right to organize. And we're seeing more places, uh, for example, uh, lawmakers could do away with right to work laws where they exist. We're seeing more states recently allowing for greater public sector collective bargaining, you know, uh, greater enforcement against employers who are engaging in uh, in illegal union busting activities. That would all help. Then there's also this, this labor standard side, uh, things like you know, raising the minimum wage or requiring employers to provide paid sick days and paid leave. You know, all of those things, if you require that businesses uh, have to provide paid sick days, then that's one last thing that an employee has to try and negotiate with their employer over. So you've sort of taken that issue off the table. Now more of that bargaining power can be spent on trying to raise pay or whatever the concern is that the employee has uh, about their job quality. All of those things. So, so any of those labor market policies, like I mentioned, basic days, minimum wage, all other things like strengthening unemployment insurance, making sure that folks have a safety net if they lose their job. All of those things would help to, to bolster workers' bargaining power and, and would be good you know, uh, measures to improve job quality. Any notable success stories we can look to for inspiration? Sure. There's actually been a lot of success over the last few years. I mean, since 2013, there have been dozens of states. In fact, I think I think it's almost 30 states that have passed higher minimum wages. There's also been a, a, around, I think it's around 50 cities or counties that have enacted their own local wage standards. There are some places, as I mentioned, where policymakers have, have passed legislation to allow more workers to, more public sector workers to, to collectively bargain. Most recently in Virginia, a number of um, Virginia counties have, have voted to uh, expand public public sector collective bargaining rights for workers in those counties. So we are seeing pockets of success where, you know, some of these issues are are resonating and where, where um, the public is able to advance these pro-worker policies. Speaking more on job quality, uh, what is preemption and how is it related? Preemption isn't necessarily around job quality. Preemption is a concept. It's just when an upper, when a, a higher level of government does something to, to stop a lower level of government from uh, taking action on a particular issue. In the job quality space, we see this a lot around things like minimum wage. So for example, 
when Iowa, a few years ago, when, when a bunch of counties in Iowa started passing their own local minimum wage ordinances, uh, the state government stepped in and suddenly said, nope, we're not going to allow any city or county level government enact a minimum wage that's higher than the state minimum wage. And you actually had instances of places where with higher minimum wages suddenly having to reduce them down to the state minimum wage. The same thing has happened in a number of other states. So preemption is just governments, higher levels of government, in most cases, states taking away the power of local governments to set their own standards and, and enact their own pro-worker policies. How can local governments work around state preemption to improve job quality? That's a great question. And I think there's a lot of local governments that are, are trying to figure that out. The biggest thing they can do is try to get state, state law to change, try to get that preemption stopped. But absent that, there are some instances where local governments still have some authority to try and raise standards, even if they're not setting explicit, you know, things like when it comes to minimum wage, they may not be able to set their own local minimum wage, but maybe they can say that everyone who's an employee of the local government or everyone who contracts with the local government has to pay some wage standard. That's not the same as saying that every private employer in this in this jurisdiction has to pay that minimum wage, but it does raise standards for a significant number of employers um, and oftentimes a substantial number of workers in a community such that it creates sort of pressure on other employers to follow suit and also raise their standards. There are things that local governments could do, as I, as I alluded to, with contracting. It may be that in, in the, you know, the, the count, the city or the county in how they spend their contracting dollars, they may choose to only do business with contractors that are high job quality firms. So they may, you know, establish standards around that to try and lift up, you know, job quality throughout the region. Those are sort of the two biggest ways that we know of uh, local governments trying to get around preemption. You know, there may also be some capacity if, if a state has, if there's a ballot capacity within the state. So in other words, if there's if there's opportunity for voters to pass laws through the ballot, through ballot measures, that may be, that's sometimes a way to uh, to force policy change in a state where there's preemption. So a good example is like Florida. Florida has preemption of local minimum wage laws. So no county in the state can pass a minimum wage higher than the state minimum wage. A few years ago, Miami-Dade tried to Pass a higher, tried to set its own uh, higher minimum wage, and this, you know, the state came back and said, you know, that's preempted. You can't do that. A few years later, advocates were able to get a ballot measure on the ballot to pass a fifteen dollars statewide minimum wage, and lo and behold, just last year it passed. So now, instead of just Miami Dade going to fifteen dollars, the entire state of Florida is going to go there. How can outside pressure groups and activists organize and work around job quality? Well, I mean, I, I think I think a lot of these issues intersect with the the issues that so many of them are already dealing with, whether it's uh, housing challenges or lack of sufficient public infrastructure in their communities or, you know, whatever the issue is that they're already getting organized around, more likely than not, how people, how people's work, the, the quality of people's work is going to intersect with whatever their issue is. You know, the vast majority of Americans get their income from their paychecks. So, so much of what we need to do to improve people's lives uh, comes from figuring out ways to make those paychecks larger. And so advocates, you know, can, should, can talk to worker centers, they can talk to labor unions, they, or they can talk to their lawmakers and, and their members to try and elevate these issues and educate them on the needs for job quality reforms and, and measures to bolster worker power. 
we're already fans of the preempting progress in the heartland document that's been put out, but are there any upcoming earn projects addressing job quality that people should be on the lookout for? Well, there are lots of products that our earn members are, are constantly putting out. You know, one thing that our earn groups often put out is a report called the state of working X, X meaning insert your state name. Just recently, I know Maine put out their state of working Maine report and, and a lot of our earn groups throughout the country do this. And these are just good reports that provide a comprehensive look at what the state of the economy is for working people in those states. And more often than not, provide some policy recommendations for state lawmakers or local lawmakers to, to try and address some of those problems. I would say always keep an eye out for those reports. Other things in the pipeline right now, we're doing some work right now looking at conditions for workers in long-term care facilities. So we know that in the pandemic, you know, the, the challenges of low pay and high worker turnover in nursing homes was a big contributor to a lot of the, the, the death and hardship that occurred in those facilities during the pandemic. And so, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice time to, to take a closer look at, at what working conditions are like in those job in those facilities, what pay is like for those workers, what are the things that would make those jobs higher quality jobs, because there's evidence showing that, you know, in the places where there was less turnover, where those jobs were higher paying and better quality, the pandemic had less of an effect. There was less death. There was less hardship. So um, that's a piece we're working on right now. We're also looking, working on a, a piece that is trying to assess sort of the, the, the idea or the economic development model of a lot of states in the South. Oftentimes, we hear this narrative that the you know, uh, low tax, anti-regulation, anti-union posture of a lot of states in the South have led to a huge growth in jobs. And it's been this sort of uh, bonanza of job growth. When people who have investigated this question, controlling for, for, for very simple things like population growth have found that performance for uh, performance of, of economics, of, of uh, excuse me, of job growth in the South hasn't really been that spectacular. And not only that, we know that workers in the South are oftentimes some of the lowest paid workers in the country. Poverty rates are some of the highest poverty rates in the country. So if if the strategies were were really, you know, the panacea that some of the proponents uh, claim they are, why is there so much human pain? Why is there so much economic suffering in these states relative to other places? So that's another piece we'll be working on over the next year or so. Excellent. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today and answering some of our questions. It was great talking with you. And thanks very much to Earn as well for being our featured contributor this month. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Dave Cooper, Director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, otherwise known as Earn. EARN is a nationwide network of organizations advancing an inclusive, worker-centered economy through state and local policy change and rigorous research. EARN, thank you so much for your work and for your contributions to the ProGov21 Policy Library. I'd also like to thank Alexis Ciccone for joining me today. And as always, thank you to the Free Music Archive for providing our soundtrack. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ada Inman, and this is the ProGov Podcast. To keep up to date with ProGov21, you can follow us at ProGov21 on Twitter, sign up to receive our newsletter, and check out our constantly expanding, fully searchable online library of progressive policy resources at ProGov21.org. Mm-hmm.